Infrastructure as Code allows developers to use programming languages to define the architecture of their software deployments, including servers, load balancers, and databases. There have been several generations of Infrastructure as Code tools. Systems such as Chef, Puppet, Salt, and Ansible provided a domain-specific imperative scripting language that became popular along with the early growth of Amazon Web Services. HashiCorp's Terraform project created a open-source declarative model for infrastructure, and Kubernetes YAML definitions are also a declarative system for infrastructure as code. Palumi is a company that offers a newer system for infrastructure as code, combining declarative and imperative syntax. Palumi programs can be written in TypeScript, Python, Go, or .NET. Joe Duffy is the CEO of Palumi, and he joins the show to talk about his work on the Palumi project, as well as his vision for the company. Joe also discusses his 12 years at Microsoft and how his work in programming language tooling helped shape how he thinks about building infrastructure as code with Palumi. We're looking for show ideas. If you have an interesting story about infrastructure or a blog post or a conference talk that you saw recently, or just something that you'd like to hear about, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for new ideas and fresh projects to cover in the world of software. Joe Duffy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. You run Palumi, which is a company building tools around infrastructure as code. And when I think about the evolution of infrastructure as code, I think of several generations. You've got the Bash scripting generation, and then the Chef, Puppet, Salt Stack generation of tools, and then maybe CloudFormation and Terraform, and then the current state of affairs where it's container orchestration, a lot of Kubernetes. And obviously, these generations overlap with each other. They're not exactly mutually exclusive. But I'd like to start by getting your historical reflections on the different generations of infrastructure as code. Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of the the changes kind of mirror the changes in the cloud, honestly. I think you look back so the first generation of infrastructure tools, you know, you look at bash scripting and just, you know, sort of manual processes. A lot of a lot of teams, you know, previously the developers would would file tickets to have their IT organization stand up servers and then that turned into, you know, scripting and then, you know, chef and puppet really were the first time where, hey, let's let's use code to solve some of these challenges. And you know, but those were really born in a world of virtual machines and configuration. Uh, where you're patching servers, you're not, you're not, you know, provisioning new servers. And I think over over the years, then the cloud vendors themselves introduced their own infrastructure as code tools. So with CloudFormation, ARM templates, Google Deployment Manager, Terraform. And though Terraform, you know, was born around the time of you know CloudFormation, I think Terraform was the first that really said, "Hey, let's take a consistent approach to this, you know, provisioning challenge where." You know, we're provisioning new infrastructure and, you know, that that's a DSL, which is definitely a step function better than using YAML or JSON. And, you know, I think these days you see, you know, Pulumi, you know, the approach that we took is embracing general purpose languages like Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Go, C Sharp. And, you know, AWS has the CDK project, which is kind of taking a similar approach, but, you know, for the the more AWS only style of of, of project. I think that's really trying to recognize that, hey, you know, developers these days really do have to think about cloud infrastructure in addition to the infrastructure teams themselves. Give a brief overview for how Palumi approaches infrastructure as code. Yeah, so my background, you know, I was at Microsoft for a while and, you know, I I actually ran the languages groups before leaving. And so I came from a very developer-oriented background where... What got me up out of bed in the morning was thinking about developer productivity and, you know, really giving great tools to developers. And so when I came to the infrastructure as code space, it kind of struck me that we just sort of applied different standards to the productivity, the tooling, you know, the ability to test your, your infrastructure. And so we really wanted to take everything we knew and love about application development and apply that to infrastructure development. So it's great for, you know, infrastructure engineers who want to be more productive. They want to be able to share and reuse uh, patterns rather than copy and pasting. But also 
acts as a bridge. So now, hey, the development team can be a little bit more self-serve. And, you know, in small teams, you really don't want to have that divide between the two, you know, the infrastructure team, and the developers. You just want to say, hey, engineering team, go build something great and use the cloud to do it. Uh, but in larger teams, you actually see the infrastructure team wants to to let their developers go and, you know, spin up new microservices or serverless functions or queues and databases. But the technologies today sort of kind of force the silo because they're fundamentally different languages, different tools. And so we took approach an approach of saying, hey, let's unify those two sides of the engineering house and really help people work better together using familiar tools and languages. Describe the difference between imperative and declarative programming when it comes to infrastructure as code. What are the merits and costs of each of those programming paradigms? Yeah, it's a very good question because a key piece of the magic with infrastructure as code, especially for provisioning, is the idea that it's it's based on declaring your desired state. So most infrastructure as code tools, you know, what, what the, the program, if you will, actually declares a desired state. It says, hey, I want, you know, these security roles. I want a Kubernetes cluster. I want a database. Uh, I want a load balancer. You know, I want all these things. Then the infrastructure as code tool, its job is to make that happen and to do it in a reliable way where it works not only for the first time you spin up the infrastructure, but then when you go and make a change, like maybe you add, you know, a third server, the infrastructure as code tool, you're again, declaring your goal state. The infrastructure as code tool can say, hey, you've already got two. You're asking for a third. So I'm just going to go create that third, right? It can do this like incremental updating. So the the approach that we took was actually kind of marrying the idea of general purpose languages, which, as you mentioned, can be imperative. We actually support, you know, functional as well with F sharp, but marrying that model with the declarative model. So you're actually just using an imperative language. So you can use for loops or classes or functions or a functional language, uh, if you prefer, to declare that goal state, but it's still declarative at its core. And that's actually a key element that we don't want to lose. Because, you know, today, every cloud vendor has their own SDK. If you want to go write some Python to go, you know, spin up some servers, you can do that. But that imperative model, without that declarative goal state core, there are a lot of reliability challenges. And if it fails, what do you do? How do you recover from a partial state? Uh, you don't have a full history of kind of who changed what and when. You can't, you can't preview the changes and make a plan before you apply it as two independent steps which are all key things that infrastructure as code gives you. I can understand the merits of introducing imperative logic. And like you said, you have if statements and for loops, and you don't just have a totally declarative structural representation of, of what kind of infrastructure you want. But I thought there were some kinds of risks that were associated with imperative logic for for describing infrastructure are there, are there some kind of risks or or downsides or costs to having an imperative model commingled with that declarative syntax i'd say there're really two things one the tool has to get it right and and that's that's actually tricky so it took us about a year to really figure out how to do this because you, you do want to be able to see all the changes before you execute them right and so in a typical imperative model you don't know what the code's going to do until you run it. And so normally, you know, let's say you're going to deploy a change and it's going to lead to downtime. You know, maybe it's you're changing a property on a server that can't be, you know, updated in place or you're rolling out a new Kubernetes master version and you don't have, you know, an HA configuration and so that change is going to re require some downtime. In a, in many imperative models, when, until you run the code, you don't know if there's going to be any, you know, you don't know what know what the impacts are going to be. And so you can't plan for that. You can't plan for the downtime. You, whereas we've kind of figured out the hard problem of how do you how do you marry that with the declarative model? And the implementation of that is quite difficult and gnarly. It's got a lot of promises and asynchronous data flow dependencies in it. It was tough to figure out. It took us probably three or four iterations before we really got it right. So that's the one area of complexity I would say or, or you know, risk that we don't have because we figured out how to do that. The second area of risk that definitely I hear, you know, from folks is, hey, once you've got a full language, you can build entire castles of complexity and 
certainly that's that's a risk i think that's a risk with application development too however so i that that's not one that really resonates too much with me and we don't see it that much in practice it turns out abstraction is kind of a good thing if you want to function here or a class there you're free to do that but certainly some people can take it too far you know if you're having like uh, some folks are really religious about their sort of object-oriented patterns. And so if you're seeing factories of factories, you know, in your infrastructure as code, maybe that's an anti-pattern. So certainly you've got you've got the full power of a language and you can do great things with it, but you can do awful things also. <laughs> have you ever seen that? That sounds horrific. Not in infrastructure as code. I, I have, you know, I used to do a lot of Java programming. Right, I same here. I was going to say, I've seen that yeah. in Java code plenty. <laughs> no, but... I do see, you know, folks creating factories, you know, for servers and, and honestly, it's, it's, it's really cool. Some of the patterns that do emerge that are powerful, right? Um, some folks are using, you know, abstraction to help tame the complexity of multi-cloud, you know, being able to run a, you know, a service on Azure Kubernetes and AWS Kubernetes and have some abstraction that helps them tame that. But you can definitely take it too far for sure. Now we've touched on some of the contours of what Pulumi is. It's, it's obviously infrastructure as code. It touches on the kind of the foundations of what makes different programming languages useful and how to make developers productive. And so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of elements to the company that you're trying to build and, and it, it kind of resists any analogy to any particular other company. And so to, to understand what you're trying to do with Pulumi, I, I'd like to get a little bit of historical context because you spent 12 years at Microsoft and many of those years were working on language tooling. Of course, this was in the context of Microsoft evolving into a company that was focused on cloud. So I'm sure you were in some really interesting conversations around what's the nature of programming languages? What's the future of programming languages in the context of cloud? And I've seen some some other projects that are kind of approaching the programming language question with acknowledging the cloud. There was the Brendan Burns imparticle, or what was it? Um, metaparticle idea. Metaparticle. yeah. There, there's that thing. There was the ballerina language, dark lang. There's these kinds of like cloud-first programming language things. But I'd really like to get your perspective on how your work on programming languages has informed how you see infrastructure as code. Yeah, it's it's a great great question because I did not expect to end up, you know, building an infrastructure as code platform. It really happened because of that that long journey. I'd say, you know, my early days at Microsoft, I was, you know, on the C# Sharp design team uh, very early on. I worked on some really interesting projects. I think, you know, Sort of around 2002 to 2003 uh, was sort of when multi-core started becoming a thing. And, you know, pretty high-level folks at Microsoft started to get a little concerned because, you know, if chips weren't getting faster, then, you know, there's this old saying, Andy giveth and Bill taketh away, which was Andy Grove at Intel would ship faster processors. And before they would hit the market, Microsoft would figure out new software capabilities that would use up all that computing power. And... That really was like the Wintel era, right? There was this nice synergy between the two. And that was threatened, you know, it stalled out around that time frame. And so I sort of led some efforts to try to bring parallel computing into mainstream languages. And through that, I kind of realized that there are all these specialized languages that we can learn from. And there's, you know, honestly, you go, you can read papers from the 1960s and 70s on parallel computing and how it's going to be the next big thing. And a lot of them talk about distributed computing as well. Um, and so back then, I I really brought some of those key ideas into existing languages. You know, instead of creating a new programming language, like this one, this one Nestle, I can't remember what it stands for, NESL, but they had, you know, data fork join parallelism, uh, data parallelism kind of baked into the language. And so I used those as inspiration. And I learned from that, that a lot of times, you know, libraries are actually kind of an extension of the language itself. You don't always need a new language to express a core concept. And honestly, a lot of the stuff we did there ended up turning into the await, async await stuff that started in C sharp and is now in JavaScript. It's, it's, you know, in Python, even Rust is now adopting it. So a lot of the work we did back then really foreshadowed some of the modern asynchronous computing challenges. I did work on a distributed operating system through that. 
uh, a little bit later around the cloud era, where it was more of a distributed operating system um, with a lot of message passing and honestly foreshadowed a lot of the microservices challenges we're having now with service discovery and how things connect and fault tolerance. And we did create a new language in that process, and then, but ultimately folded a bunch of the ideas back into C Sharp and C++, in fact. So I think my biggest takeaway when I came to this new space was, although I saw a lot of reasons why a new language might make sense, I saw many more reasons why we didn't need a new language. I saw, hey, we could actually just take some concepts and put them in the language. Like, you know, with Plumi, we needed the idea of expressing this goal state with resources and cloud resources. but using promises and existing concepts actually was enough to really get something that worked and worked well. And you didn't have to learn a new language. You can use your favorite language still. That said, languages like Dark, I mean, I love them. They're they're really pushing the boundaries on the ideas. I think in a lot of these cases, you end up pushing the boundaries and then you take the lessons learned and, and figure out how to apply them back to the existing technologies. In some cases, like with Rust, you really have a breakout success and that thing just becomes it hits the tipping point to become a thing that exists over the long the long run. But in either case, I think goodness comes out of it. And what was it like being at Microsoft as the company shifted its core focus to Azure? It's interesting, actually, especially being on the other side now, where basically we're kind of the interface for a lot of our customers into AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. When we started talking about Azure, I mean, it started with Dave Cutler, who you know, he's he's the main architect for Windows NT. So he's a very operating system oriented guy. We we used to talk about, it was Red Dog, you know, we used to talk about it as a cloud operating system, which is kind of the way I approach a lot of the things with Pulumi. It's, it's like you write your code. Today, imagine you want to write just a normal client-side program. You write a bunch of code and behind the scenes, there's these operating system kernel objects that get created you know, file handles and, and you know, mutexes and sockets and things like this. And the operating system manages them. Well, imagine the cloud is just the, the new operating system. And all these resources we talk about are actually just cloud-managed kernel objects in a sense. Well, that's kind of the way that we approached Azure in the early days. The interesting thing is AWS approached it from a very different angle. And it's it's actually quite apparent now. I think Azure is much more platforms as, you know, end-to-end sort of platform-y services. AWS, on the other hand, gives you these, you know, 180 different building blocks that you then stitch together. Uh, So you can see those differences in philosophy really shining through, but it was an exciting time. It was also interesting because at the time, you know, you had Bing and Azure and they were kind of two separate things. And so I was involved in some, in some cases, reconciling those differences, but definitely super exciting. And, And, you know, a lot of my Colleagues and, and friends are now kind of like in the Azure group and Azure continues to just continue growing and all the developer tools are over there. So it's come a long way. And when did you start thinking about building a company? Well, I almost started a company before joining Microsoft. In fact, my first job was a consulting business that I kind of had you know, in high school trying to get help people get uh, their businesses onto the internet. And so I kind of had a little bit of a taste of what it was like to run a business back then. But honestly, I went to Microsoft, you know, it's a great opportunity, great technology, great people. I just kept learning more things and meeting new people and having fun. And every year I actually asked myself, you know, is now is now the time to leave and start a company? And the answer was always no, you know, I kept on, you know, learning new things that I wanted to, I really wanted to get a taste of managing technological innovation at scale, which Microsoft, very few companies on the planet allow you to see it at that level of scale. And so I, I found that super valuable. And, you know, I just wrapped up the project, you know, to open source uh, .NET, do, you know, take a cross-platform. Um, I was involved in that effort and it got to a good place where I felt like now, you know, I've learned so much, I can now go and actually seize this opportunity. And that, that was the other element. I saw this huge opportunity with the cloud to really make it easier to program and bring it more into the, the developer's inner loop. And so the timing was perfect. Just so happened I had, you know, great co-founder who was ready to go at the same time. It was kind of serendipitous. And so we said, hey, now's the time. We're going to make the leap. And 
and we did. And uh, it was definitely not easy. It took a while to figure out kind of exactly what we were doing. And but I'm so glad that that we did. Okay. Well, it's 2020, and you're building an infrastructure as code company. What are the shortcomings of the available solutions for infrastructure as code? Why did you need to build an entirely new company around infrastructure as code? Yeah, so the first, the first, how it started was I was seeing a lot of tooling around Azure and I saw, you know, Kubernetes and Docker Swarm in those days was a lot easier than Kubernetes, but then you had to, you know, manage your own etcd cluster if you wanted to go into production. And I, but I fell in love with that Docker inner loop and, you know, I saw, AWS Lambda was out there and it was just, I saw these, these amazing capabilities and I just wanted to use them in my application. I wasn't coming from an infrastructure perspective. I was coming from, a, I see these capabilities and I see what they can potentially do to my ability to build more powerful software. I want to use them. And I think I was just a lot more naive than I should have been. But, but so, so that led me to think, you know, hey, imagine in five years, every developer is going to be using the cloud in one way or another. And the cloud is kind of a superpower for people, right? Whether it's hosted managed databases or compute services, so you can do event-driven compute using serverless or hosted AI ML services that allow you to do you know, speech recognition as part of your application. The cloud has all these superpowers and it's just so hard for developers to get access to it today. So that was kind of the starting point. And I guess I eventually realize that until the infrastructure as code problem is solved in a way that integrates more seamlessly with the application development stack, that we could never get to that, that level. And really, I saw power in the way that AWS sort of has built their platform where it really is all these building blocks. And so the idea was infrastructure as code is just kind of a way to stitch together all these building blocks to big, to build bigger things out of smaller things. And that was the, the enabling capability that that I, I thought we needed to, to make easier for developers and to, to really make accessible to developers. So I looked at the tools today and was like, well, I don't want to learn a new, a new language. And, and if I'm going to go through the trouble of learning a new language, it better be a great one. And that wasn't the case. There were a lot of DSLs. There was, you know, so much YAML. I mean, you know, I just wanted to do a Lambda. And next thing I know, you know, I've got three times the amount of YAML as I have uh, application code. So there just was that joy wasn't there, right? I, you know, I think one of the defining characteristics of what we have in application development is joy. We've got great editors. You get interactive documentation. If you mistype something, it tells you, you know, it's, it's a great thing that we've got going there. And I just wanted to bring that over to the infrastructure space, which frankly, it seemed like our standards were just a little bit lower than they should be. There was a talk I heard you where you mentioned uh, Docker Swarm, and this, this, this comes to mind now. You were a fan of Docker Swarm, but as you know, Kubernetes won out. I wonder if you have any reflections on why Kubernetes won the container orchestration wars and just reflections on that time around what people want out of an infrastructure management tool. What did you learn from the from the container orchestration wars? Yeah, it's a great question. Even you know, even though I a huge fan of Docker Swarm. I was always long on Kubernetes uh, for a few reasons, and I can I can tell you why. But it's funny because you know people ask me a lot about Kubernetes, and I think like Kubernetes is sort of should fade into the distance. I look at a lot of the you know I mentioned I worked on parallel computing. I think I think back then it was you know you had to manage your own threads, right? And you didn't want to manage your own threads; you just wanted to run tasks or you wanted to do data parallelism. And it's like, well, I need some threads to run the compute. And so now I have to manage them. And that's kind of painful because what if I have lots of competing demands? Well, there needs to be a, a scheduler. There needs to be, you know, something doing resource management. And and so we came up with this thing called a thread pool, right? Which is something that would like pool threads and schedule across them and make sure you didn't have too many, but you had just enough to make the most out of the resources you have. And I kind of view Kubernetes as... Filling that need is just instead of threads, you've got containers. You know, so I think this analogy again, which I'm known for taking analogies too far, but you know, if you think of this cloud operating system, well, the containers are kind of the threads and you just want the, the cloud to manage the scheduling of them. And you want to just declare, Hey, I've got these 10 things that could run. Can you just make sure they do? And so Docker, the thing that hooked me was 
it's the first time I ever felt like, wow, I can just take a piece of, you know, a piece of code, a, an application or a service, and I can just package it up and run it in the cloud. And it's going to run in the cloud pretty much the same way that it ran on my desktop. Of course, you get into trickiness around networking and storage, but but the problem is one thing is far less interesting than n things, and you almost certainly want a lot of them, and they need to connect with each other. And so, Swarm to me, you know, Docker Compose, you know, I think it was called Fig before it became Docker Compose. I thought was great because it was easy. You're like, I've got a database, I've got a an API server and a front end, and they all connect in this way. And you just run Docker Compose up and magic happens and, and it's great. The problem is running that in the cloud was then a huge drop-off, right? You had to then manage your own Etsy cluster. And and the thing that was pretty clear to me early on is Kubernetes, although way more complicated, had already thought of the entire end-to-end set of challenges for how do you do that? And how do you do that at scale, informed by how Google did that? I felt I always felt like Docker Compose was great for the simple case, but they were just learning as they were going all of those nasty issues that were going to come eventually, whereas Kubernetes had already not not solved all of them, but at least thought about the, the, the hardest ones. And honestly, I'm always a fan of publishing, you know, papers and research and you know, with the Omega papers and a lot of the precursors to Kubernetes, you could actually go and, and, and you could read all this deep thought and learnings and experiences. And so for me, that was why I thought in the early days, you know, Kubernetes from a technology standpoint is going to win out. Now, it's not always the greatest technology or the best technology that wins. But in this case, I think the need was so great. Also, there's one other component to it, which is a lot of the customers we work with, they're using Kubernetes to to basically get an approximation of a public cloud in their on-prem hybrid environments. And so it's a way to modernize without needing to go bite off the entirety of the public cloud transformation so they can kind of tiptoe towards it. And I think that's a huge reason why it's seeing a lot of success also. Okay, great. Now that we've taken the oblique approach, let's go more directly into Pulumi. I want to understand the programming model for Pulumi. So let's say I've got a simple web application. Maybe it's literally just a server that serves requests to, you know, hello world.info. And when I go to hello world.info, it just loads a page that says, says hello world. And I want to have this application be described in Pulumi infrastructure as code. What am I doing? What, what kinds of files am I writing? Like, what does that even look like? Yeah, so I guess the first, we have these nice little walkthroughs to, for getting started. And basically, you have to make two top-level choices. One, which language are you going to use? And two, which cloud are you going to host your web service or web server on? And so, you know, we have Python, TypeScript, JavaScript, Go, uh, .NET, so that, that includes C Sharp, F Sharp, VB. That kind of dictates the style of the code. I think one of the key things that we've tried to do is make sure that every language feels idiomatic. So, you know, everything in, in Python is going to be snake cased. And, you know, in JavaScript, you're going to have things that are, might be promise based. Um, and C sharp, you've got async await. So, so that's just one thing to know. And the, the project structure as a result is, is identical to the project structure in whatever that language is. So. If you're using Node, we use NPM, NuGet for, for .NET, and, and, and PIP packages for Python. So everything should feel like you're just at home right away. The same thing is true of your editor. You know, if you want to use JetBrains or VS Code or Vim or Emacs, you know, everything, all the syntax highlighting, statement completion, everything just works. But the key is you basically are going to declare, you know, the main function of your program essentially serves a slightly different purpose than it typically does because what what it does now is it declares the infrastructure state. So in your case, you know, maybe maybe you're using, you know, AWS EC2 VMs, for example. There's an AWS package. So whatever, you know, language you, you chose, you import that package and then you're going to say, "Hey, you know, new server, and then every property available on EC2 web servers is exposed to you. 
So we don't hide anything. We don't, we try not to get in your way. Even though we're, we're multi-cloud, we give you all the properties, all the resources available in each of the clouds. So if you want to use, you know, CloudWatch for, you know, diagnostics or Route 53 for DNS in AWS, you've got all of that at your fingertips. And so we've got a lot of, you know, sample code and templates that you can start from. So you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't know everything about AWS, you don't have to like start from scratch. I will say, one of the other things to know is because it's a programming language, we give you abstractions. So for common things, like say you want a static website, you know, maybe you want to do effectively what Netlify gives you, but just host it in AWS in S3. Well, we've got simple components to make that easy. And that's, again, the magic of programming languages. It's, you know, turtles all the way down. You've got classes that can compose other classes. We can encapsulate some of that, that complexity so, if, so you don't have to go super deep on every cloud. Now, does this mean that Pulumi is essentially an SDK and the abstractions in the SDK are, if I'm on the AWS cloud, literally the AWS abstractions? Like I can say S3 bucket foo equals new S3 bucket, which is going to spin me up an S3 bucket, meaning you plug into the AWS SDKs. Is that an accurate description of what you do? Yes. Yeah, we have packages for every one of the cloud providers that effectively just plugs into the SDKs, as you point out. The providers, it's pluggable. So we actually have some customers who implemented their own for different resources. But each one of those is projected into every language we support. So AWS is available in all the languages. Azure is available in all the languages. But ultimately, it's tying into those SDKs. This is what to me sounds so hard, is it's an N by N by N problem, because you've got three cloud providers with N services and N programming languages that you support. Isn't that really hard? (laughs) It is incredibly difficult. I will say we just keep ourselves sane. We've come up with clever ways to manage the complexity. Um, We actually have available something like 36 different resource providers. So it's not just AWS, Azure, Google. It's also Kubernetes. It's also, you know, new, new Relic, MailChimp, GitHub, long list of, of providers there. I think, you know, we've taken a few key approaches to using existing provider implementations. Like, for example, you can actually take any Terraform provider and plug it in. And that will just project it into all the different languages. And so if you're using a Terraform provider you love, you can actually just plug that into the system. And it's really easy. We're also, we do a lot of code generation. So we have this, the provider model actually has sort of a schema at its core. And from the schema, we can actually code generate all the different language SDK projections. So even though you've got AWS in Python, you know, JavaScript, C Sharp, and Go, it's all generated from that same central shared logic. And so we can test that and make sure the code generation is right. And then we don't have to go and manually implement the SDK for every single language we support. So, and, and furthermore, one other thing we do actually, like for Kubernetes, we actually code generate the schema itself based on the open API specification in Kubernetes itself, which means when Kubernetes ships a new feature, we have same day support for it without us having to go do a bunch of manual work. So you add all these things together and we've we've managed to tame that crazy explosion of complexity. That's a powerful idea. So if I understand correctly, and by the way, when I said it was an N by N by N problem, it's actually N by N by N by N because I forgot to say N services per cloud. Uh, or right. I guess, you know, <laughs> N by M by P by Q or whatever. Um, sorry. But... Uh, what you said is actually really interesting. So if I understood correctly, like, so Kubernetes, for example, you can have code generation tools that can uh, essentially, if, if Kubernetes comes out with some new feature, you can have an automated way of of saying, okay, we like we acknowledge this new feature exists in Kubernetes. Now we have to make this, you know, we have to generate code that makes this feature available in the Pulumi SDK. Uh, and you could do the same thing theoretically if MailChimp updates their API. You could say, okay, now you know they've added an additional call to to MailChimp, and we can just run our code 
code generation tools and and have that magically ingested into the Pulumi SDK, and we could theoretically do the same thing for AWS and Google and so on. That's what you do, or am I understanding correctly? It is. Not universally. We, we do it wherever we can. We're actually working with a lot of different folks to 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 move more in that direction. You know, Azure, for example, actually does publish all these open API specs and they themselves generate their SDK out of them. And so that's an area where, you know, we're we're working with them to to sort of, you know, move that forward. Google has a project called Magic Modules, which which effectively does this as well. I think the the unfortunate bit is there's kind of a lack of standardization. So everybody does it slightly differently. So even though Kubernetes, for example, has open, open API specs, there is a little bit of glue that you have to that we have to implement that for the most part is general that works for any new service. But it's things like, you know, if you think about what the provider has to do, it needs to know how to create, read, update, and delete resources. And so usually the open API spec describes the resources, describes all the properties, and describes the APIs to perform those CRUD operations. But how do you wait for an operation to complete? Um, what if what if an operation requires two calls to something instead of you know, instead of just one? Is there a way to cancel operations if I control C my deployment or something? Um, those are the sorts of things that tend to be kind of bespoke for each of the different open API specifications. But the nice thing is people are generally moving that direction because people realize it leads to consistency, it leads to, you know better tooling and better automation and it just makes everybody's lives easier. I kind of wish, you know, there was a CNCF standard for this is the resource model specification that everybody's kind of, you know, moving towards and who knows maybe we eventually get there. My understanding is that what's hard about doing that kind of thing uh, even through all the the mighty power of the CNCF is that AWS just has too much gravity, and you can't really have the CNCF telling AWS what to do because AWS could just say, "No, we don't want to standardize. We want to be AWS. We just want to do whatever we want to do." Like they don't want. I I, I remember having some of this this conversation with some of the people that were trying to do like an open event specification to do like the functions as a service to make the functions as a service world more open and more heterogeneous and 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 AWS was just kind of like eh, I, I don't think we we really want to get involved in that I think we just kind of want to stick with lambda being the uh the concrete that you know cements you to AWS <laughs> like is AWS playing nice in terms of making their their specifications open and and I don't know open enough to allow this kind of code gen that you want to do? Yeah, actually, I completely agree. I mean, if AWS weren't to to participate in in that sort of effort, it, it just wouldn't be worthwhile. Especially the whole goal is to standardize on cloud resource provisioning. You know, AWS is a sizable percentage of that uh, that market. But they, they actually are. Uh, if you look at a lot of the cloud formation, you know, documentation and schemas are actually open source. I think the, the key thing is it, it actually makes it easier for the cloud providers to build an ecosystem around their tools. So, for example, cloud formation. It's, know, it's like regu docu regulatory capture. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's actually, it, it makes their, their lives easier too, right? It's, it's much easier to, instead of implementing every single one of the, these things by hand, it's a lot easier if you actually have a model. Now, whether you open source that model and share it or not is a separate question. But I definitely see a lot of folks are interested in that direction. I I, th I think it's probably a little bit pie in the sky to say that we'll ever have one standard because in AWS's defense, like they did kind of come first. And so they've, le they've learned a lot about their APIs and not all of their API shapes can conform to one standard uh, at this stage. Like EC2 and S3, if you look at their APIs, they're... Definitely a lot less standardized than, you know, let's say EKS and some of the more recent ones. Uh, I think some folks like, you know, Azure, Google Cloud have had the advantage of starting a little bit later. So they could have introduced some of that, you know, standardization sooner. And I think that's why, you know, Azure really is pretty uniform. They have this open API spec, which kudos to them. They knew early on that, hey, we really want to standardize on this. And so they were able to do that. But it's hard to retrofit that. But in any case, like a lot of the stuff you can probably, even if there were some kind of AWS APIs on the long tail that 
were hard to get your Pulumi SDK properly updated with. You know, the basics, you want a, you want a, a S3 bucket storage, you want maybe a, a you know, an RDS, a, you know, database. These things are are probably not going to change for the most part and 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 if you standardize your your SDK around them, you know, you can have you can deliver to the to the developer the kind of experience that you want. If if I understand correctly, you want to give to the developer a a programmable SDK that really simplifies this cloud experience instead of being this nightmare of having to go into the the console and have to do these things or to have uh, you know a bunch of different SDKs that are you know built by different AWS teams you you have this unified uh, experience in Pulumi that really simplifies things yeah absolutely and you know a lot of our customers have to go to different clouds and so the fact that even though the APIs are different, you're still using the same tools, you're still using the same languages, you're still using the same method of deployment is really important to them. And I think, I think, you know, another interesting thing for us is we let you kind of spin up new environments very easily. So, you know, let's say in your example, the RDS database, you know, well, what if, what if you want a test environment? Well, you know, a lot of our, you know, folks that are using Pulumi are, are, spinning up ephemeral environments in their pull requests and just doing, you know, testing and validation and then tearing them down. And, and so that, that workflow is, is important also. This whole, you know, how do you do CI CD in addition to just how do you write the code, but how do you actually orchestrate the deployments and how do you manage lots and lots of environments at scale? If I'm only in AWS, what advantage do I get from using Pulumi over the AWS SDKs and infrastructure as to- code tools? So definitely, you know, we support cloud native technology. So if you're using, you know, Kubernetes, Helm, and any of those technologies, we let you have one, you know, standard way of, of going about it. I think, you know, especially compared to CloudFormation, you know, which is YAML based, the ability to use, you know, different languages that you're already familiar with is huge. We have a bunch of libraries as well. So let's say you want to run, you know, a load balance service in ECS Fargate. Maybe you're not using Kubernetes. You And frankly, that's, you know, ECS Fargate is quite a bit simpler to use if you're on the golden path than say Kubernetes. Um, so, you know, we have a way in 20 lines of code where you spin up an entire Fargate cluster, you build and publish a Docker file in your microservice to a private ECR registry. You spin up an ALB load balancer and, you know, all, all the Fargate service definitions that use your, your Docker image. And, and honestly, that would be probably one to 2000 lines of CloudFormation YAML. And you can write in 20 lines of your favorite language. You run Pulumi up and sort of magic happens and out the other end pops a Fargate cluster with a load balance service running your your Docker container. And so I think you just get way more done. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of folks who, who think they're single cloud today, you'll be surprised down the road, you know, whether you're selling your product to, you know, customers that are running an AWS and you want to be able to reach Azure customers too, or some folks get acquired or, you know, the economic situation changes, like, Actually, standardizing on one workflow and tools that you know in the future can go to any cloud is actually kind of a nice insurance policy to have as well. If I heard you correctly there, the idea is that because of how Pulumi is architected and because of how the SDK works and because of the integrations with programming languages rather than raw YAML, you just are writing fewer lines of code. Quite quite a bit fewer. In fact, I think the first time we knew we were really onto something, we actually helped somebody go from 20,000 lines of YAML in their CloudFormation templates down to 500 lines of JavaScript, just straight Node.js code. And the developers loved it because they had no idea what was in those 20,000 lines of YAML. Like, they're afraid to touch it. There's so much copy and paste going on. They just, they really kind of hit a wall. And then they moved to this model and the developers are running full speed ahead, right? This is a smaller startup where they just didn't want to even have like a separated infrastructure team. They had like an SRE who is really good at networking infrastructure and clustering, but they really wanted to let their developers just kind of run full speed ahead. And this let them do that. That's definitely a pattern that's played out time and time again. 
the easiest comparison to draw between Pulumi and something else, I think, is to Terraform. How does Pulumi compare to Terraform? Yeah, I think Terraform is definitely, you know, it's the household name. It's the gold standard for current infrastructure as code. I would say the the DSL-based infrastructure as code approach. I think a number of things. One, Terraform 0.12 actually introduced some sort of for loop capabilities and and quasi-programming language constructs. And it's really an admission that, you know, my experience with programming language design has always been DSLs work great in the early days until you start pushing around the edges and you realize, oh, I actually wanted a full-blown language. And then you're forced to do these things with the DSLs. You introduce kind of quasi-programming language capabilities, but they're never quite as good as the real language. And then you start getting pushed in weird directions. Like, what if you want functions? What if you want classes? What if you want package management? Well, at that point, you just want a language, right? And so we see that, you know, a lot of folks, whether it's because you're copy and pasting too much or or the other side of things is, you know, developers, you know, oftentimes don't want to learn a new DSL, especially if it's a huge step backwards for them. They lose access to the IDEs that they love. They lose access to their test frameworks. And and so really, I think that's kind of where things start breaking down. It's kind of like a huge step up for the infrastructure team where they're now more productive. They can share and reuse best practices. And then, you know, for the developers, they're kind of not afraid to, to touch it anymore. But, you know, Terraform is definitely, you know, they've seeded that that provider ecosystem, I think, which is which is great. That's why we added these sort of adapters so you can tap into those. But definitely, I think Terraform users also kind of understand why Pulumi is great because it solves a bunch of problems that they currently have. The adoption process of Pulumi for a detailed, complex enterprise application, what does that look like? If there's somebody out there who is working at a big enterprise and they're curious about Pulumi, all these things that you're saying resonate with them. They want an ability to write infrastructure as code in their favorite language, whether it's JavaScript or Python or Go or whatever. Uh, they want to combine declarative and imperative code. How do they get started? What is the kind of the the entry point for a complex application? Yeah, I'd say Pulumi is open source. So in terms of just how do you get started, you know, it's pretty easy to get started and to try something out. So most people will start by just trying something out. And it's usually like what you were asking earlier. It's, hey, let's see if I can spin up a web server. Uh, let's see if I can spin up, you know, a new microservice or a serverless function or Kubernetes cluster. We see a ton of people doing it for clusters. So that's usually the first step is like familiarize yourself with the tool and, and see what you do like about it. And then usually it's kind of becomes more apparent where the opportunity to to leverage it might be. And what that tends to be is, let's say you're adding new infrastructure to an existing set of infrastructure. So again, going with your, it's a big enterprise, big project. Maybe you've been tasked with, hey, we need to adopt EKS, right? Amazon's hosted Kubernetes service. Well, it turns out we have a bunch of packages for that, make, you know, a bunch of playbooks, in fact, because it's actually not that easy to do in terms of hooking it up to CloudWatch and Route 53 for DNS and ALB for ingress. So usually it's, it's important to find what is a scoped proof of concept that I can start with and prove that, hey, this is going to work for me. We have a bunch of integrations into existing systems. And so oftentimes, you know, maybe you're using GitLab pipelines for deployments. We just plug straight into that. And Spinnaker and, you know, Travis and Jenkins and all these other systems you might already be using. So we try to make it really easy to integrate into your existing systems. Another area where we make it easy is if you are coming from Terraform, we have ways to coexist. Either you can reference existing Terraform state files. So maybe your VPC is in a Terraform state file. You don't want to go rewrite that yet, but you want to spin up this EKS cluster that uses the VPC. Well, you can, that's easy to do. Uh, and then we actually have tools to convert from Terraform, you know, source code translators that will actually translate from HCL into JavaScript or Python. And we, we offer a bunch of other tools too, like adopting existing infrastructure so that when you decide, like we've had people that like major companies that you, you would recognize that have said, hey, we're going to just go all in on Pulumi and we're going to convert all of our existing live environments on the fly to Pulumi. That sort of thing is possible. And we've, we've 
created a bunch of tooling and playbooks to make that easier. But usually how to get started, you know, have a really focused POC where you can have a clear, clear success, you know, that you feel good about that. You can then go show your colleagues, you can show your manager and start building up support for a broader adoption. I guess just just to wrap up, I, I know we're up against time, but I'd love to get a little bit of understanding of where the business is going and what the revenue opportunities are, where you're actually going to be making money with Pulumi, the company. Yeah, we're seeing, you know, we really focus first and foremost on building an open source ecosystem that to to date, that remains the most important thing to us because we think happy, healthy ecosystem you know that's that's the rising tide to lift all boats that's that's the thing that we're really focused on and and frankly we're seeing phenomenal success there people really do fall in love with the tool i mean some of the stuff i see on twitter just makes me so happy and smile every time you know like palumi gives me superpowers i love this thing you know and so we want to keep growing and nurturing that i think we made a smart decision early on which was we're not going to hold anything back it's all open source and we're not going to do open core Instead, we're going to offer SaaS. SaaS is kind of the business model. So when you download the open source, it offers, you know, hey, do you want to use the free SaaS to store your state and, you know, do kind of deployment management and things like that? It's the analogy I draw is like you can use Git without using GitHub or GitLab. But it's so much easier to use Git with GitHub and GitLab and they offer free tiers. And if you want to use it in your team, uh, it's really hard to use Git by itself without something like a GitHub in a team. And so that's sort of how the Pulumi CLI and SDK works with our, you know, SaaS product. We've got really cheap option for kind of teams just getting started, you know, $50 a month for a number of people and projects. And then all the way up to the enterprise edition that has some advanced features around policy and compliance and identity, you know, SAML SSO, things like that. We're seeing good adoption. You know, we've we've got you know pretty major customers, large enterprises. You know, Mercedes Benz has been a great partner. We're actually expanding internationally with them. But I think the long term challenge for us is even beyond that. Is okay, we're we're doing infrastructure as code. How do we still attain that vision of every developer on the planet can use the cloud as a core part of how they're building software? And we're just scratching the surface of that. I think we've got a long way to go, but it's a promising foundation to to build on top of. Joe, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 